This is the last message in our topical series that we've been going through called Sanctifying the Ordinary. Uh, that word sanctifying, if you're new, just means uh, make holy or set apart for special use. And so we're thinking, how do we set apart various aspects of our life? We've looked at a bunch of great topics. We've looked at work, singleness, finance, singing, motherhood, mental health, education. Last week we did friendships. Uh, and so if you want to listen to any of, those any of those messages and look at those topics, they're all online. I, I point you to them. I think they're great resources. Uh, today I want us to look at, as I said before, death. It's the last stage in life. It's a fact that we can't avoid. And so we need to think, how do we, as Christians, deal with death? We're all confronted with this inescapable reality. As soon as we're born, we're dying. We don't often think of it like that, but really, as soon as we're conceived, we're in the process of death because of the fall of humankind. There are 8 billion people on earth presently. In the next 100 years, 8 billion people will become extinct. They'll no longer exist. It'll likely be more than 8 billion. Already this year, 29 million people have died around the world. Probably more since when I found that statistic. In my own life in the past month, Maddie's grandfather, Bob Starkey, he died and we were at his funeral. I was meeting with a friend at a cafe and a pastor in Blacktown, Charlie, and he, he told me that Last week, the last week, he had to do a funeral for a stillborn 39-week-year-old child. He's a young pastor like me. And in our own congregation, as I said, Jenny's mother passed away. Death, we can push it to one side, but it will always push itself back in. Many of you have sick parents and grandparents. Some of you are sick and facing death yourself. Many of you have already lost precious people in your life, all looking down the barrel of grandparents and thinking, perhaps it's soon. When COVID swept through the world, there was a time, I think, when everyone had to deal with their own mortality and face the prospect of death face to face for themselves. And for some, it can fill us with dread and fear and despair. It can bring about deep sadness and depression. Some of us, in, in face of the difficult and negative feelings around death, like to brush it away, think of the positives, uh, come up with some kind of sentimental way of, of thinking through it. We can put away those thoughts of our own death or the death of others. But today, what I want us to do is to sanctify death. You know, in a sense, you can't really sanctify death. It, it is an enemy. But what I want us to do today is, is sanctify how we deal with death. And the question I want to ask is, how should a Christian, and if you're not yet a Christian, this, if you ever to become one, how should you deal with it? How should we deal with death? 
every religion and every worldview, whether you hold some other religious perspective or you're atheistic or agnostic, every person has to deal with death somehow. Everyone has a perspective on it, whether they've thought about it or not. So how do Christians deal with death? There's so much that could and should be said on this important topic. And I could go into a systematic theology of death and give you different talking points and theological points. Um, But I I would direct you to Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. He has a great couple of chapters on death. I don't want to do that this morning. Today I want it to be a bit more personal, not theoretical. And so today I want us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death with the good shepherd. Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, is the one who will ultimately guide us through this valley of death. And I want us to watch how Jesus deals with death. And thereby, we're going to learn how to deal with death as well. We're going to watch how Jesus deals with the death of his beloved friend, Lazarus. And how those around Lazarus deal with Lazarus's death. And in it, we're going to learn four things that's going to really help us. It's not sufficient. It's not everything you need. It's not exhaustive. It's not trying to do that. But it's going to be four things that's going to help us to deal with death better as a follower of Christ. And my hope this morning is that for every single one of us, no matter how we walked in, is that we would be able to meet death face to face with realistic Christian hope. The pain of suffering and death can make us so down we can't look up or can make us push it to one side that we don't want to deal with it. But I think what we need to do, I think what Jesus is going to teach us is that we can meet death face to face with realistic Christian hope. And to do that, we're going to look at John chapter 11. And um, I'm going to walk us through that story. I'm not going to read it all in one go. I'm going to take it bit by bit. We're going to see four things. We're going to see timing. We're going to see truth, tears, and triumph. Four things I think Jesus wants us to see to be able to deal with death. Timing, truth, tears, and triumph. And before we jump in, I want to pray and ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. So would you join me in prayer? Our God and Father, we ask that you may bless the reading, preaching, and applying of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Firstly, I want us to look at timing. And would you open your Bibles to John chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, Richard Kapoor is up the back and you can put your hand up and he will give you one so that you can read along. We're going to pretty much spend all of our time in John 11, verses 1 through 16. I'm just going to read it all in one go so we get a sense of it. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. 
But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. Lazarus. Sorry. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these words, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, um, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. We come to this story near the end of Jesus's ministry. The opposition is mounting against him. In fact, in just the chapter previous, they had tried to stone Jesus to death. That's why they're afraid to go into that area because they know they're walking into the lion's den. And a messenger arrives that Lazarus, his dear friend, and one of the beautiful things about Christ is that he wasn't just this aloof God that walked about in, you know, with a halo and a perfectly white linen uh, tunic on. He, he had friends. He loves people. He's the true friend. And, and Martha and Mary and Lazarus, he loves them. It's his friend. And he, he finds out that Lazarus is sick. It's serious. And they're obviously calling upon Jesus to do his thing. They know who Jesus is. They've seen the miracles. And if you know someone who can heal someone and they're on their deathbed, you'd call upon Christ, would you not? And so they call upon Jesus to come and heal him. Yet we see in this passage that Jesus curiously doesn't meet their expectations. It's very clear that he purposely stays behind. He purposely lets Lazarus die. And in his delay, the Apostle John and the Lord Jesus Christ wants to teach us the lesson of timing. As we will see later on in the story, Mary and Martha will both cry out these words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The crowds join in and saying, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? They're so confused by the timing. If you could, why didn't you? Where were you? They're confused perplexed. And are we not the same in the face of suffering and death? What, what do you say 
you know, as a pastor to a family when their 39-week-year-old baby has died in the womb? You know, what, what do they think as a, as a family? Where is God in that? I remember when I used to be a teacher at Barker College, uh, I spoke to a young student, and young, and he, I asked him, you know, what do you believe about Christ? He said, I cannot believe in God. Oh, why is that? You know, because my grandfather died. and Why would God take him from me? I asked, how old was your grandfather? And he, he, was, he was in his, like, 90s. So whether the baby is incredibly young, or someone's really old, we can struggle with the timing. Because we, death is an enemy. We don't like death. Death is so grieving. You may have these questions for something that's happened in your life. Why did they die so suddenly? They didn't even get to say goodbye. Maybe you ask, why did they suffer so long? Whether it's short or long, we, we can question God's timing. Why did they die so young? Why did they die so old? Where are you, God? And what are you doing? Why didn't you step in? Why don't you step in right now? And all this is included in this text so that we can walk with Jesus in the face of death and see that Jesus is in perfect control over suffering in death. And he puts this scenario here to see that we need to trust Jesus in his timing, in his plan. It's very explicit. Look at verse 5 and 6 again. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 6, so, like therefore. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, what does he do? He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He could have got there and made the journey. He could have saved Lazarus. So why, why delay? If you go back to verse 4, Jesus explains his purpose. He says, this illness does not lead to death. He doesn't mean that Lazarus won't have a fatality. He sees beyond what's happening. But look at the purpose statement. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus allows Lazarus to suffer and die because he is committed to the glory of God and his own glory. He desires that in suffering and death, God would be seen for who He is and that in that, Christ would be seen for who He really is. And so He allows Him to die. He delays and suffering and death come. And the story begs us to trust in His timing. He reveals the purpose, but it doesn't solve everything, does it? It's hard to trust him in the wake of such suffering. And it raises more questions than answers, but 
It's something we have to know about God. If we're going to deal with suffering and death, we have to know that Jesus and God are more committed to their own glory than to alleviating our suffering. And that doesn't feel very comforting. But in the long run, it is comforting. Because it means that they're actually in control of all that's happening. And no suffering and no death is outside of their eternal plan to glorify themselves and sweep us up into their glory, which is the greatest joy we could ever have. Notice Jesus doesn't rebuke them for questioning his timing. Many psalms are psalms of complaint, psalms crying out, where are you, God? These questions are allowed. These questions are permitted, and we're going to do a whole series on lament in a couple of weeks' time, and we're going to dive into this. But for now, Jesus and John want to show us that one way to deal with death is to trust in Jesus' timing. You have to trust in Jesus' timing. Secondly, we need truth. So firstly, we need to trust timing. Secondly, we need truth. Now, the story progresses and we get two very powerful accounts of the sisters meeting Christ. We're, in, this first, in this second point, we're just going to look at Martha in verse 17 uh, through to 27. Would you read with me again? How does she react? Well, now when Jesus came, so he, he enters into Bethany, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb Four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. So this is right near his death. Golgotha is approaching. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So they weren't alone. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary, in her grief, you imagine, remained seated in the house. She wouldn't get up. She felt too betrayed, perhaps, by Jesus, and she stayed. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So she comes. Jesus even has faith, I believe, in this moment. She thinks she's seen, perhaps, resurrections before. And Jesus said to her this enigmatic statement, verse 23, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, in accordance with what the Jews believed in the day, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Progressively through the Old Testament, you get this picture that death is not the end. That death will actually become the transition into a new life. There'll be a resurrection from the dead. That's why this image of sleep that Jesus uses is used in the Old Testament. It softens the finality of death. You can wake someone from sleep. And so the Jews had developed this idea that when it came to death, it was not the end. There would be a resurrection. And so she believes in this end time resurrection, but she has no category for what's going to happen later in the story. No category for what Jesus is about to say. She said, Jesus says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, 
yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She says to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. We see here the second way we need to deal with death according to this story is we need the truth. Jesus comes before Mary, or sorry, Martha comes before Jesus asking the heartfelt question. And notice Jesus' first instinct is not actually to sympathize, but he goes actually straight to the truth and begins to preach and tell her what's going to happen. It may not be every way, that's not every time how we're meant to deal with people in their suffering, but this is how Jesus does it in this scenario. Jesus begins to comfort her by giving her the truth of what will happen. And in this statement, he provides us with his answer to the age-old human question, what will happen when I die? Every human asks that question. If you know Hamlet, Shakespeare's famous Prince of Denmark, asks that question, to be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, and then he goes on and lists how hard life is, and then he says, wouldn't it be great to just die? But then he, he says, ah, oh, to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream what ills may come. Death, the undiscovered country from whose traveler born none return. So Hamlet, when he deals with death, he thinks, I want to die. I want to escape the suffering. I hate what is happening in my life. But if I die, what will happen when I die? I don't know. And so he says, the fear of death makes us do nothing. And our, our resolve to, to take action dissipates. Every culture, every religion, every person has to deal with the reality of their mortality. What will happen when you die? Generally, Eastern religions have answered this question with a much more cyclical view of life and death. That after death comes rebirth and we come back into life. Entire, indeed, the entire cosmos is cyclical, coming into life and death. There's been many worlds and there'll be many worlds after this. That's the Eastern view, Buddhist and Hindu. And they have lots of different ways they view it, but that in general, they see life as cyclical. When someone dies, they'll come back. There'll be some form of reincarnation and eventually some kind of release into the eternal God nature. In Hinduism, it's called moksha, where the, the part of God in you goes back into Brahman. In, in Buddhism, your soul becomes released from the shackles of mortality and you go into this everlasting state of, of peace, nirvana. Western views after Christ have, have dealt with the afterlife in this view of eternal paradise or eternal judgment. The Roman Catholics teach that there is heaven for those who die fully remit of all their sins. There's hell for those who die outside of Christ, unbaptized. But if you're sort of in between and you were baptized but not fully you know, perfect when you die, you haven't yet made it, they've, they've created this other category called purgatory. 
Um, it's not actually taught in the Bible. It's taught in other uh, scriptures that the Catholics have added into the Bible. And, and it provides this place for you to work your way back into heaven. You pay for your sins in this place called purgatory. Materialists or atheists, in response to the church, in response to the Enlightenment, have come to believe that there is nothing more to life than physicality. We are glorified clumps of cells. We are, you know, salt water. Uh, was it Scott that said that a couple of weeks ago? Or Tim Keller? I can't remember. <laughs> I mean, both of those guys are great. Uh, that we're just complex organizations of salt water. And so when we die, we become nothing. And then to deal with that, we develop these kind of sentimental views. Well, you know, like Lion King and... Um, not to trivialize it, but we die and then our body decomposes. It becomes like fertilization for the earth and then trees grow out of us which feed birds which then are hunted and other things eat those birds and the, and the circle of life continues. And so we, we deal with death even, and the, the kind of meaninglessness of materialism, realizing that there is no meaning to life by saying, well, when you die, you contribute back to the circle of life. You become eventually stardust. Uh, which is one way of trying to deal with it. In a post kind of religious way, or people that grew up religious but they've given it away, I think there's this religious sentimentalism. What happens after we die? We go to a better place. What's that place like? We don't, don't define it. Um, at a lot of funerals, there's this talk of we just can't deal with the reality of death. So we, we think they're in a better place. We think they're no longer suffering. We think they're, they're in a good place. That they're looking down on us, that they're with us. And strangely for people who aren't spiritual religious, they seem to have very spiritual views about where their loved ones are right now. So what's Jesus' view of what happens when we die? Well, in verse 23, he tells us that your brother will rise again. Jesus' view that after death, there is resurrection. We will be awakened. That death is actually sleep. And believers and unbelievers will all be awakened in the final day. And so the comfort we have is not that there'll be new life, the comfort we have is that we will have safe passage in that new life because of who Jesus is. And so Jesus teaches us in verse 25 and 26 that I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this. This claim utterly sets Jesus apart from anyone and every other world system and religion. He is saying that if you put your faith in me, this is what will happen. You will die and fall asleep like Lazarus. And upon your death, the Bible teaches us elsewhere that your body will remain here on earth and your soul will go immediately into the presence of the Lord. There's no purgatory. There's no soul sleep. You go to be with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief, today you will be with me in 
paradise. Paul said, I'd rather be at home with the Lord and apart from the body. He anticipates that as soon as he dies, his body stays here and his soul goes to be with the Lord. This is what theologians unglamorously call the intermediate state. Okay, it's not, that's why it doesn't have much of a ring to it. Um, but when someone dies that you love, that's in Christ, their body is here on earth, their soul is with God, but that's not heaven. That's not what we, that's not the end. Jesus Christ teaches that he is the resurrection and the life. At the end of the ages, there will be a general resurrection. Everyone will be raised to new life. And there'll be judgment. And those who believe in Jesus Christ will receive a new and glorious and transformed body. Though they die, they will live and never to die again. So the souls from heaven will be reunited with their body. Anyone who's alive at the time of Christ's return will be caught up in the resurrection and be given a new body. And anyone who does not believe in Jesus Christ will not be given this new everlasting body to reign in glory and paradise. Instead, they will be judged for all of their wrongdoing and sin. And the Bible doesn't give us much detail, but it paints this picture that you'll be put in a place of outer darkness, a place of eternal condemnation, a place of torment for the way in which you've wronged man and wronged God. That's what happens when we die. There's the intermediate state and then the end. And Jesus gloriously says, and I want to read these words again, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives after that resurrection and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Friend, as you think about dealing with your own death and the death of your loved ones, do you believe this? Jesus says we need the truth. He teaches Martha, you need the truth in the face of death. You need to believe that I am the resurrection and the life. And if you do, this is not the end. There will be new life to come. If you believe in Christ, friends, what could be more hope giving than to know you will live again? Death is not the end. If you don't believe in Jesus and follow Christ, you mustn't sentimentalize this. Well, you can if you want, but you mustn't sentimentalize Jesus. He doesn't give you that option. Jesus teaches more explicitly on heaven and hell than anyone else in the Bible, and especially on hell. Jesus has no category for universal salvation. There's nothing like, well, you were born into a Christian family. You were generally a good person. Therefore, you go to heaven. It does, you can't do that to Jesus. That abuses what he taught. Jesus demands that you believe in him and have safe passage into eternal life. And if you don't, he declares that you will be punished for your sins. And so he offers you today, do you believe this? Will you come to me? Will you receive eternal life if you put your faith in me and join yourself to me and I will take you through death into eternal life? It's an offer. It's an invitation.
And I offer it to you today. Even now, perhaps there are some in this room who have not put their faith in Christ that must if they want to have safe passage through death. And if you reject it, well, it's a risk you've got to be willing to take. If it's true, it's eternally disastrous for you. So how do we deal with death? Well, we saw that we need to trust God's timing. Secondly, we see here we need the truth. We need to know the truth. The truth will help us in the face of death. But Jesus isn't oblivious to pain. That leads to three. The third thing we need is we need to shed our tears. Verse 28 to 37, would you read with me? When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And isn't that just kind of the Lord? He doesn't want to leave Mary in her, her distance. He goes to her. She wouldn't come to him. He goes to her. Come. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her, these are professional grievers, that's what they did in their culture, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Uh, so the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Another way to deal with death as a Christian, Jesus teaches us, is with tears. Jesus here shows us that death is to be grieved. It is not natural. It is terrible. Death is a result of sin and it is to be grieved and to be wept over. The shortest verse in all the Bible gives us a beautiful picture of the heart of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 35, Jesus wept. It wasn't the moaning of the professional wailers consoling. It was the, 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 the word there indicates that tears were running down his face. The text tells us he is deeply moved in his spirit. Jesus deals with death and we are to deal with death, not just with truth, but with tears. Jesus, the perfect human, and his reaction to death is to cry. And he knows what he's about to do. He knows he's about to 
resurrect Lazarus. And if you don't know the story, I just gave it away. Yet he weeps. He weeps because he loves. He weeps because he cares. And he weeps, I think, because he hates death. Adam and Eve were meant to ongoingly eat of the fruit of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden and have eternal life. Yet they chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and so bear the curse that God laid upon Adam and said, if you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. And all we sons and daughters of Adam die and die and die and die and die. Straight after they leave the garden, Cain kills Abel. Murder, death, disease and destruction have reigned over human history. The last century was the, probably the most bloody century in all of human history. Anyone who believes that humans are progressing just needs to look at the 20th century to know we are just like every other age. We are going nowhere. Death reigns over humanity. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul said, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And the wages of sin, verse 23 of chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. Every one of us in this room has sinned and therefore justly deserve to die. And not only that, as we said, to be separated from God. Death is not natural. It's not a happy part of the circle of life. We're not fertilizer or stardust. We're creations made in the image of God, made to know God and live with God forever in perfect relational unity. And death is an enemy to that. It's a curse upon us. Therefore, in the face of death, it is good and necessary to grieve. It is good and necessary to weep, to mourn, to cry, to wail, and like our Savior, to hate death. In the face of death, you don't have to pretend it's all okay. You don't have to make people cheer up. You don't have to make people stop crying. Jesus shows that it's good to enter into grief. He shows that by entering into our grief with his tears. So how should we deal with death? We trust in his timing. We need to know the truth. But we also need to shed our tears. And Christ shows us that. But that's not all. It's not just mere sentiment. Jesus provides a solution. The only way we can have hope in the face of death is we need triumph. And that leads us to point four, triumph. Look at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Those words deeply moved, you might have a little footnote in your Bible. Actually, it's a really hard word to translate. 
Uh, in some ways, deeply moved is a soft translation. The commentators argue that it's, it's actually more an anger, an outrage, an, uh, an indignance. Jesus moves toward the cave angry, outraged in his spirit. Not at the wailing, not at the crying, but at death itself. Commentator B.B. Warfield early in the 20th century said this, The spectacle of the distress of Mary and her companions enraged Jesus because it brought poignantly home to his consciousness the evil of death, its unnaturalness, its violent tyranny, quoting Calvin. In Mary's grief, he sees and feels the misery of the whole race and burns with rage against the oppressor of men. It is death that is the object of his wrath and behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he had come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but that is incidental. His soul is held by rage and he advances to the tomb, in Calvin's words, as a champion who prepares for conflict. The Bible teaches us that Satan, in a sense, has the power over death. And so Jesus walks toward that tomb ready for battle with death itself. He meets death face to face. He has come to slay the enemy. And so... Verse 39, Jesus says, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet unbound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. We need triumph in the face of death. Jesus enters the arena and emerges victorious. None of us can shout at any tombstone and see a dead person come to life. But Christ can because he is triumphant over death. And this is a sign in John's gospel. This is actually the last of the seven signs that Jesus gives. And this is the final sign pointing to the ultimate reality that Jesus himself will taste death. He will die so that he can conquer it for us. He will be crucified on a cross in our place to pay the wages of all of our sin so that he can be buried in a tomb like Lazarus, so that the tomb can be broken open and he rise again in three days later so that anyone who believes in him will be resurrected in a body just like his. He has triumphed over death and he gives a taste of it in the face of of Lazarus and in the tomb of Lazarus. And for all our friends and family who have died in Christ, we can ask, where is the body? 
Because one day, that body will rise again. That body will be shaken awake, resurrected, never to die again. We can sing the ancient song of Isaiah that Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can look upon the body of those fallen in Christ and just know oh, this is not the end. I will see them again. We do not grieve as the world grieves. Yes, we grieve, but we grieve with hope because we know that there is a resurrection. We can write poetry like John Donne in his famous poem, Death Be Not Proud. He says, death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not. Poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. And we can be sure of this because Christ died and rose again in our place. Jesus goes to Lazarus, even though he knew that brought him to his death. Shortly after Lazarus rises, he goes about and everyone's talking about it, as you would imagine. And so the religious leaders think, we have to kill this guy. We've got to get rid of him. And so they make their plan and their plan is fulfilled. But in doing that, in putting Christ to death, he secures our triumph over death. Jesus died so that we can triumph over death with him. We need to stand in the triumph. So how do we deal with death as a Christian? Well, in this beautiful story, and I commend to you, you know, this, is, this is not going to get everything done in your life. This is not exhaustive. But you can come back to John 11. You can walk in the valley of the shadow of death with loved ones who are dying or in the wake of the death of a loved one or as you face your own mortality. And you can walk through this story again. And Jesus, the good shepherd, will accompany you as you read his word. And you'll see that you can trust his timing for his glory. You can know the truth that if you trust in Christ, you will be resurrected you can shed your tears because death is not natural. It's an enemy. And you can stand in triumph because you know that death has been defeated. And so how do we deal with death as Christians? We meet it face to face with realistic Christian hope because Jesus has conquered death. Let us pray together to close and sing our final song in Christ alone. And we must sing because we cannot end today without singing.
Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you have defeated death. We thank you that you are in control. We thank you that we know the truth. We live by faith and not by sight, yes, but we choose to believe that Jesus Christ has triumphed death. And therefore, if we align ourselves with him, we will live forever. And we thank you, Lord, that you shed tears with us. We thank you that it's not just doctrine, it's devotion. We thank you that you cry and that you're with us. And I pray now as anyone is really struggling, Lord, I ask that you would help them to know your imminence, that you are with them, that you hear their cries, you welcome their tears and you cry with them. And so Lord, would you minister to us now and help us to stand in realistic hope, knowing that death is not the end. One short sleep passed and we wake eternally. Death, thou shalt die, is our cry. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.